Hello, you're listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. We are a general interest independent bookstore located in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles, California. This year, because of the coronavirus pandemic, we've had to close our store and cancel in-person events. But Skylight is your neighborhood bookstore, and we are finding ways to create community even while we're far apart. In the coming weeks, we'll be putting out lots of new audio content to help you discover new books, connect with authors, and check in with your favorite booksellers. To learn more about how you can help keep Skylight alive, please visit our website at skylightbooks.com or check out our social media accounts on Twitter and Instagram. You can subscribe to the podcast on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Thank you for listening and enjoy. Linnell George is a journalist and essayist. After Image, Los Angeles Outside the Frame was her first book of essays and photography exploring the city where she grew up. As a staff writer for both the Los Angeles Times and LA Weekly, she focused on social issues, human behavior, visual arts, music, and literature. She taught journalism at Loyola Marymount University in Los Angeles in 2013, was named a USC Annenberg Getty Arts Journalism Fellow, and in 2017, received the Huntington Library's Alan Jutze Fellowship for her studies of California writer Octavia E. Butler. A contributing arts and culture columnist for KCET Artbound, her commentary has also been featured in numerous news and feature outlets. Her liner notes for Otis Redding Live at the Whiskey A Go Go earned a 2018 Grammy Award. Louise Steinman is a writer, artist, and literary curator. Her three books include The Crooked Mirror, A Memoir of Polish Jewish Reconciliation, The Knowing Body, The Artist as Storyteller in Contemporary Performance, and The Souvenir, A Daughter Discovers Her Father's War. Steinman founded and was for 25 years the curator of the celebrated Allowed Literary Series at the Los Angeles Public Library. Her essays have been published widely. She is co-director of the Los Angeles Institute for Humanities at the University of Southern California. Please join me in welcoming Linnell and Louise. Thank you. Thank you. Thank Hello. you. Hi, welcome everyone. Welcome, welcome thank everybody. you. Seeing some names in the chat. Thank you, Skylight, for hosting cool. us. Louise, cool. thank you. <laughs> you know, I just want to start. First, I want to thank Skylight, which is my neighborhood bookstore, a great bookstore. Thank you so much for hosting this. And then just to start, Linnell, I just have to say how deeply moved I was reading this book. You know, I've known you were working on a book uh, about Octavia for years. I didn't really know what kind of book it would be. And it's such a special, a really unique book. And I hope we can give some of that feeling tonight of what what makes it such a such a special book. So I wanted to start just with just a little bit of the the, the background. Um, how how were you invited into the archive at the Huntington Library, the the which is the the Octavia Butler archive? Right. Um, well, I um I had coffee with uh, Julia Meltzer, who's the director of Clock Shop, and I had, uh, which is an arts organization in Los Angeles, and they do lots of great work. They're in Frogtown, and um, they just wonderful programming. Um, and she had invited me in to do one project and then invited me um, to copy and said, I have this idea I wanna do, um, I wanna do uh, some programming around Octavia Butler and I would like to invite writers and artists to work in the archive and develop um, pieces um, that uh, in some way, shape or form, and it could be open you know, to whatever you wanted to do, but whatever, what inspires you. And she gave me sort of a loose um, structure saying like, maybe because, because I'm a journalist, maybe you can do something like a posthumous interview. And I thought, huh, what would that look like? What would that sound like? What would that feel like? I have no idea. Um, but I said, sure, because 
course, I want to go hang out at the archive at the Huntington. So I get in that way. And when I get there, there is a finding aid, which, which, is, which documents all of the holdings. And it's this thick, like in a binder. Like I can't. Wow. And um, there are almost 400 boxes of materials, 350 or 60 boxes. I wrote it, it down 386. 86. See, I transposed. Um, it's, it was overwhelming. I mean, and it's every, it's, it's, it's not just manuscripts. It's um, notebooks, diaries, um, her newspaper clippings, um, old pencils, old pens, old notebook binders, um, her shopping lists, her bills. Her check stubs. So what's what's really incredible? I mean, not only that all that stuff is there, but that she saved it. So yeah. someone who and and also we need to know she gifted it. So she thought to give this collection to the Huntington, right? They pursued it, or she gave they, it. They pursued it. Um, Sue Hudson, who is was the at the time um, the. Uh, the um, I just it just went out of my head. Uh, the uh, literary manuscript curator. She went to an event and saw um, Butler speak and was blown away. And so went up afterward and you know stuck her hand out and shook her hand and told her that and had her card you know and said you know I don't know if you've been thinking about what you would like to do with your archive you know um, but. We would love to have it. And it was, you know, many, many years ago. So it wasn't even something that was even close to, you know, I think in uh, even in Octavia's mind, you know, like, oh, yeah, sure, perhaps. But um, some years pass and they are put together again. I think Sue is going to pick Octavia up for an event at the Huntington and it was mentioned again. And at that point, Octavia had made a decision, you know, yes, um, don't worry, you know, the Huntington's in my will. Um, and Sue tells this story about, and of course, when Octavia dies so young at 58, um, Sue said, she goes, I never thought I was going to see that archive come into the Huntington. And, mm -hmm. um, and yes, and so here come the trucks. And so, so it's poignant, but that's where it is. And that was her choice. But she kept all these things. She kept, she, she, she identified what they were and they're like a map for you. And so you, you're there in the archive, I think for four years, you you spend time with that archive. Yeah. yeah as a freelancing. And then when it started, when I was working on clock shops project, I would, Fridays were my day to go and I would spend the whole day on Friday. And then once that project was done, um, I applied for the, the Jetsy Fellowship. And same thing, I was trying to work it around a freelance schedule. And um, it was while I was working in the archive on the fellowship that I started to develop this book. But the seeds of it happened while I was finishing up the clock shop piece. Mm -hmm. so it was like freelancing and, yeah, trying to do this at the same time. So I lived Octavia's life, it felt like. Well, that's very much in the book. I mean, it's it's a writer's story, and it's you're living your story as you're channeling her story. But tell us a little bit. So you're there with all these. There's 386 boxes. Did you touch each one of them? How did you how did you coexist with them? How did you how did you decide which how to move between them? What listened? How did you listen to them? It's really a good question. Um, I know in the very beginning when I went in. I knew because in my head, I'm thinking interview. So what would it be like if I'm trying to listen to her? I don't want her formal voice on the page. I, so I don't want the manuscripts. I don't even want drafts of the manuscripts at this point. I want diaries. I want letters. I want to, I want to hear what she sounds like when there isn't, she's not thinking about, an audience, a formal audience. Um, and then from there, I started to drill down and I started looking at marginalia. And that's what I felt hard about. You know, I felt really hard for the marginalia because 
that's where she was really working things out. You know, it's sort of like, so you would see this, these beautiful pages that were, you know, handwritten full of like, she's drafting, 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 rough, rough draft, but then it might break and she'd start a letter or she'd start a note to herself or, um, and in the margins might be questions or answers for herself or something like she probably heard on the news. And that's the voice that started to warm itself in my head. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. that's where some of the humor comes in. Like she had this wicked sense of humor and it was, she could be wry and she could be, you know, pretty sharp. Um, but I loved what was going back and forth, you know, in her head during the day. And these beautiful pages show you that. This is a very tactile book. You know, it's, uh, it's, it's gorgeous. It's like, there, there's a whole page given. We'll talk about it to her library card. I mean, you you, you really get a sense of the stuff, you know, the stuff in this in this archive. Um, but the first the first thing you had to do was, I think, and 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 these questions that were identify the questions you want to ask. Right. One was like, how does one become a writer, yeah. and how did she become Octavia E. Butler? What was that? What was that trajectory? And it seems like um, you you work those questions. You you let those inform you. Mm -hmm. Yes, I was really interested in the how someone like Octavia, who lands on this idea of being a writer, um, because she's a reader from a very young age, and she's just swept away. Um, and she talks about you know starting to make up stories for herself where she becomes the star of the story. And so she was very aware at a young age that like she wasn't finding stories that were, or finding a place in the world, stories that that figured people like her or in, nor in her own life. So she'd get lost in these stories, but, um, and then she realized that she would tell the stories to her mother and one day she said, and I realized I was forgetting my stories. And so that's when I started to write them down. And I was so interested in this really organic way of like coming to like these words and these stories are really important. And then what she did after that, where she had no models at all and very little encouragement, she decides she's going to be a writer. And how does she do it with these humble objects so like cast off notebooks cast off diaries that her mother um was a, yeah, a, a housekeeper right housekeeper she would bring her um old books and old diaries so you, you see in some of the diaries some of the pages are filled with somebody else's handwriting some of it in another language and she just writes around those wow. she puts them her own and that's just it i thought Here's a really wonderful example of somebody who didn't focus on what she didn't have. She focused on what she had and she like did miraculous things with it. Um, would you read um, about the diary? I wanted to talk about how important these, you know, her keeping a, a journal, this voice is on um, page 3233. Okay. Um, that'd be great. Okay. So from... Just, um, just some children, yeah. Okay. Okay. To the next page, um, thinks she might not make it. That would be a nice passage. Okay. Um, to middle of the page of thirty-three. Thinks. Um, okay. I gotcha. Okay. All right. Just as some children make a tent out of two chairs and a blanket, Estelle, and that's her middle name. Estelle crawls inside the pages of a journal. She is amassing a small collection of cast-off recycled diaries, most scooped up from a waste bin by her mother in one of her domestic jobs. Estelle sits in the quiet of the house, away from her mother's hymns and Bible verses, away from the noise of children playing outside, opens a diary's cover. She clicks on the radio, tunes the band to 93KHJ, Let's pop songs settle her mood. She comes here to these pages, especially to do and say the things she can't loud. Sometimes it's best, she acknowledges, in those pages to keep things to herself. The tangents, the open questions, 
the most outlandish notions, feelings and beings and visualizations. She is learning, belated as it may be, but there is still time to change. I want to go and go and go, she confides on the page. I want to take part. Her quietness, her shyness were so often misunderstood, taken for slowness, for ignorance, for laziness. Finding words for her feelings makes her aware that the wear and tear on her spirit doesn't just come from trying and then coming up short. Weariness and weariness is a result of being corrected again and again, so sternly overcorrected that you just don't bother. You just go deeper into yourself. Sometimes in her journals, she attempts to see what others might see. She gleans that she is perceived as someone who can't be penetrated, someone who floats at the edges of her small world's periphery. Estelle wanders that territory. She claims it and decides to work it as if it were her own new province. That bridge from here to there, out of childhood into adolescence, is precarious. It feels so flimsy. It tosses around in the flurries of yearning and peer pressure and uncertainty. There are long stretches, hours into days, when Estelle thinks she might not make it. So, so beautiful. I mean, we were talking a little bit earlier today about this internal, you know, the self-doubt that she had to constantly, constantly push against. And I, it made me, after we talked, I went and pulled off my bookshelf, um, a book by the psych psychologist, um, mm. Alice, Alice um, Kaplan, the um, Alice Miller, The Untouched Key, about how why certain troubled children turn out to be artists, children mm. who haven't had ideal you know, childhoods or homes. And, you know, it really, she talks about how it was, so, it's so necessary for the ones who do succeed that we found that, the, that there's always a sympathetic and helpful witness who confirms the child's perception. And it occurred, it, I thought like for Octavia, it was Octavia. It was, she had to be her own witness and the yeah. journal, the journals yeah. don't think are herself bearing witness to Absolutely. her coming to the meeting. That's beautiful. And it's absolutely true. And she would revisit, and this is, she would revisit journals years later, 10 years later. And those, those to me are really fascinating. She'll go back and it'll be 10 years and she will start talking to that person she was 10 years ago, um, you know, to, and then she kind of starts to untangle some of what's happening in the present you know, so that she can figure out like, okay, so I was feeling that way then. I'm better now. So that means that I can still do, I can do this. I can still go beyond that. But yeah, so there was this reassessment, you know, that happened. So yes, absolutely. I, I love your your phrase. Um, you were talking about how in her home, you know, you said uh, the blues were not, aren't records spinning on a turntable, but heavy moods that drift in and visit both mother and daughter. Yeah. Estelle's diary serves as another secret escape route, a closet to hide in or a window out of which to look. And then I was thinking of just like this, the kind of, um, you know, lineage of diaries. I mean, I started thinking about Anne Frank. I mean, how this is a friend. I mean, her diary is really, yeah. you know, to see her herself. So we need to set the scene here for people too. So. This is in a small bung in a bungalow where she lived with her mother in Pasadena, which is if you're I see some of the people here are not um, not all from California. So Pasadena is is to the east of L.A., nudged up against the San Gabriel Mountains. And it's also where Linnell lives. Yeah. So tell us how, tell us how Octavia animated, you know, Pasadena for you. Yeah, it, it, I have to say it was the strangest thing. I knew that she was from Pasadena before I got into the archive, but there was something about sitting and looking and then looking at these addresses. And I'm like, Marengo, Washington, Fair Oaks. And then she would be really specific about something like, I know where that is. I know where that is. And then I realized I live in her old neighborhood. I live steps away from where she went to the library, caught her buses, went to the market. Um, she is around me, you know, like that. And, you know, I could, 
And so coming back sometimes from the archive after having read something that um, had transpired that day, you know, sometimes I would just go like, okay, there's a little address and she had described something she'd seen on her walk. She was concerned that a neighbor had done something to a tree or not done something to a tree. I'm like, I'm going to go see what's happened to the tree. You know, uh, there was that, but also I, this idea of putting on her lenses, you know, and looking at the same mountains as she does and um, taking the same walks by chance, you know, that I am, she's around me and it just added, it really did add to my own knowledge of place, the history of place here. Um, she talks about, you know, the schools, some of the early schools, she went to elementary schools, they, you know, she was in, you know, schools that were segregated and then eventually got knocked down once they desegregated Pasadena schools. Um, but she talks about like how much of her, that part of her childhood was torn down. And so memory for her was something she goes, I just don't, she didn't look back in that sense, you know, that built memory that didn't matter. She goes, because I have it, you know, it's in me. I don't need to go back and look at it. So she was of that place. You were, you know, of that place. She was also of Los Angeles in yeah. general and the way she um, moved around it. Um, you know, most people in LA have a car. Um, she traveled by bus and the bus was a kind of, you know, we're both friends of, of Maricela Norte, wonderful yeah. poet who, you know, another poet of the, of the, of the bus route. But for Octavia, you said, you know, the bus was really moving theater, yes. right? Yes. Like, so she could be alone and she could also overhear people, right? Or even interact, right? Yes. And she really looked forward to those trips um, because it put her in in and around people. She was very, very, very shy. And she talked about being shy and an introvert. And so, and being a writer, it forces you to be, and she has this great quote about, you know, being a writer, you know, forces you to be alone with your thoughts, all of them, all of them, you know, and it's true. It's like you're shut in. Um, so being out in the world and being able to eavesdrop and watch people and interact with them and practice her Spanish. She, you know, she took Spanish wow. classes and um, some of, some of these journals, um, you know, in order to hide them from, you know, whatever she was writing, you know, from family members who might peek in them, she would write in Spanish, some of them. So, you know, just to like have, you know, to practice, you know, so, so these, this sort of being in the world, but also like on a magic carpet, you know, like, mm. to, you know, like moving through space and moving through all the different Los Angeleses that you get to through Pasadena, you know, you know, downtown, um, you know, and it, it's, it's, really, it's really key for her. When she came to do a talk at Central Library years ago for our literary series, she came on the bus. Uh, I thought that was wonderful. I think she was the only writer that, no, that's not true. Marcella probably came on the bus. <laughs> You know, I, I love the the title of, of the book, which is A Handful of Earth, a, a Handful of Sky. But I was also thinking, you know, the way you describe her mind in this book, um, her mind is always working, clicking, digesting, assimilating the colors of light, the ache of an adjacent broken heart. It also is the book could also be called A Beautiful Mind. I mean, it's like you really are animating this very restless, you know, this curiosity that's just kind of a, a electric you yeah. really capture that um yeah. and compliment it thank you i mean she was grabbing from so many places you know she called herself a news junkie and she was i mean you look at the clip files and they're just everything and, and it's so fascinating to see the way um you know that things are organized there too where it's like immortality and um uh cults and she was biodiversity and i mean she's looking at vampires you know like and all of these are in little clip files that she not little big vast clip files and she talks about how when she was writing it was hard for her to watch the news because the news pulled her in so much and out of um out of her writing um, she was inspired by, you know, news events and 
Um, and she would do character sketches, um, not so much necessarily based on people who were in the news, but so say she would take something, she'd take a word like charisma, you know, and then kind of delve deep into what that meant and who, who, who was charismatic and she'd make a list of different people who were charismatic and it could, you know, it'd be John F. Kennedy and Elvis Presley. And I mean, and then, and then she might start from there, but all of these things, like, so all of this is going on, you know, <laughs> this is going on the news and, you know, so she, she was overhearing, she was reading, but she was also taking in signs, which I think that's a really interesting part of the book. And I wondered if you could read the little journal excerpt. It's on page 139. Um, that's the one that's in the center of the page that's that's from right from the journal. Okay. Okay. Mama's pea tree has leaves with bright orange persimmons, oranges, lemons, grapefruit, ripe and ripening. Most not ripe yet. Many palm seeds looking like camphor berries, but harder. When the cats are away, the jays come down to eat their food, question mark. Or drink their water, exclamation point. One red-leafed sycamore most only go yellow and brown, then naked. And then that last, that last graph on that page, which is okay. your right. The planet keeps talking, sending signals steady communicating. She has captured its transmission. It's in crisis. It's struggling. If you're quiet, anyone can hear it, even see it. That, that really touched me so, um, so deeply. I mean, the sense that, I mean, it's there in her writing, um, but she was, she was taking it in on such a visceral level from such intimate signs right, right there in her neighborhood. It's not like. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that, yeah, absolutely. Like you didn't have to go anywhere. Like she didn't, she just was watching. She was just paying attention. And, and this is something that went on her whole, her whole adult life, you know, young adult life, you know, she started, research and climate and writing about climate in the late seventies and early eighties, like, you know, just, just out of curiosity. Wow. I mean, she grew up, um, see what year was she born? Do you remember? 47. So she grew up in the era. I mean, we both of us grew up in Los Angeles, not so far apart from each other. Um, yeah. You know, smog right. was. Uh, there were days when, you know, now we can't see the mountains sometimes if there's wildfires. Right. Then you couldn't see the mountains, you know, half the time, more than half the time because of smog. And I, that was probably true even in Pasadena. I mean, yeah. I was going to Pasadena in the 60s and like you could not see across the street. Ugh. You know, it was it was like a, a, a veil. Yeah. So to imagine her, you know, moving, moving through that through that landscape right. and, and and trying to imagine what that um, that was, you know, when when she did come to Central Library, um, since I know now that you you would have you would have loved to do a, a live interview with her, I, I wish I'd asked you. <laughs> I wish I I wish I'd know. Yeah. But, but the book really is. I mean, it's not just a posthumous interview, Linnell. It's really like a posthumous collaboration because, and maybe you could talk about that a little bit. How your own you know search and struggle as a writer, or the things that you deal with, um, making your way in the world as a writer, how you see them mirrored you know, or reflected in, in, in her, in her work in the, in, in this ephemera. Right. Um, her struggle, there's so much in her struggle that's familiar. Um, and especially being this idea of being underestimated and mm -hmm. really trying to like make yourself seen and heard that your vision of the world what you see every day, those persimmons, you know, whatever it happens to be is important enough to write about, to have conversations about. She was diminished so much. I don't know sometimes how she went on, you know, mm. um, but she did. And she, there was this fire in her 
Um, and so as I'm reading and going through the, especially the journal entries and some letters, you know, that she, when she had close friendships and she, um, sometimes she would talk a little bit about it, but she kept so much of this, you know, to herself that, that felt familiar too, because it's like, you kind of want to try to work it out and, um, not feel as if, um, like you want to work it out. And you want to get your script together. And that's what I I kept seeing in her. She was always trying to perfect, you know, this, the, the person who was going to be in front of the world. So I make this really, you know, you, you, in the book, this break where, you know, at home, she's called Estelle, Estella, Junie, you know, her nicknames. But she makes a decision at a certain point, like, I need to have more, you know, I need to have. And so when she begins to call herself Octavia in the book um, and in the world, like that becomes, that becomes the figure that becomes her guys that becomes I, her armor, you know, mm-hmm. like you, know, you are not going to diminish Octavia. You're just not six foot tall Octavia. You are not going to diminish. And she, but she had to work at that. She did not like public speaking. She did not, um, she was so hard on herself. Like I, after she would do something, she'd write journal about like, you know, I didn't get this right. Or um, if you don't know what to say in a panel, don't say anything, you know, better to be quiet. I mean, she just really was hard on herself. But then I see her and I'm thinking, oh my God, she was fantastic. You know, like, so she was just really hard. And so that I recognize too, like this kind of driving yourself, you know, but when you think about, you know, how she had a no safety net, you know, so she had to decide whether she'd buy a can of beans or pawn her typewriter, which her mom did give her when that was quite a beautiful gift at, at, at 10, but the people who were doubting her. So, and she also had to learn how to tune out the negative voices. And some of them were, they were negative because they were concerned about her. Like, No quote. Who do you think you are? Like, aren't you? Why aren't you thinking about a job at the post office? Right. Because they're thinking security, you know, and they're thinking at a time, especially like who does this? You know, you know, you're you're a black girl. You know, they're not writers. You can do that as a hobby. That's wonderful. And it's great that you have this great hobby. But you know, and, but she could see what we couldn't, what they couldn't see. And, and it, and she got tired of explaining it. And, um, and she didn't want to always feel, feel like she was on the defensive. So she, you know, she kept her own counsel and she did not tell people. So yeah, it was exactly that. It was a, they did it out of love. It wasn't out of, you know, especially if it was family and close friends, it was, that was not about, trying to diminish her. They wanted her to be safe and they wanted her to have a plan. And, you know, because, because as you said, there was no, there was very flimsy safety net for her. So she, you know, she had um, her university, her graduate school was, was the library. She had her library card. And I love the story, you know, when we talk about her not having these role models, you know, she, you know, how do you become a writer? Like, where's the book that tells you how to become a writer? But she was on the bus yes. going. She and bus. She, tell us, tell us that story. I love that story. That's a great story. Yeah. She's finally trying to send out her stories and she has, she finds a teacher to type one of her stories for her because she doesn't even know how to like use the typewriter or line up the page. And, um, and it's so, it's so wonderful. And then she realized like, well, once I have the story, like, how do I even send it out? And who do I send it to? Right. Really had no idea. She had no idea. I mean, she was reading these science fiction magazines and fantasy magazines, but she really didn't have an idea. And she got on the bus one day and she found a copy of the writer magazine sitting in the bus seat. (laughs) And it was like, there it is, serendipity, you know? Um, you know, and it gave her what she, and then she's like, okay, now I know these exist and I'm going to go look at, for them in the library. And that's how she figured out how her plan of action and what she should do and even how to write a query letter, you know, and things like that. She had no idea, you know, 
And I love that she kept all her, um, what do you call those slips when we used to fill out slips? All yes. All slips at the library. So you could see all the books she checked out. Yeah. And, and there are piles and piles and piles of them. Piles. Tell piles. us a few of the, the titles like that um, you surprised you. They were they were like some really wild ones. There were, there. I can't remember all of them. And in fact, even the book is sitting here. But one of the things that she also used, I mean, she was looking up karate and manual. It was like a martial arts and, and, and things like that. And, but she was also looking up, there was a point in her life where she didn't like, she started to kind of waver and like, well, I'm going to maybe need a backup job thing, but like, how do I figure out what that would be? So she used the library to research careers based on her personality traits. And she like, I don't want to work with the public. So, you know, you know, so she knew she didn't want to be a librarian. That was one of the things that was funny. <laughs> she was like, but um, but she she also researched that. So she was also looking, she was looking, she researched and wrote her first book um at the library. So those exist. You know, um a lot of the material for Kindred too later, um, she checked out from the library, you know. And many of the librarians there, when I worked there, I mean, they remember her. I mean, they remember her specifically, you know, where she sat, you know. Um, yeah, Lynn Creason is the one. I I called him and I said, do you remember? Because she she said exactly where she sat and um, and she would go to the history section. So I called Glenn. I said, oh, yes, I remember her. <laughs> and he said she looked, she always came in looking extremely focused, like you just did not want to disturb her. Um, she's friendly, you but like she was there to work. You know, yeah. it was her job. It was her job. Oh my God. She worked so hard and she um suffered so much for her. I mean she, you know, the denial of of other pleasures as she pursued this. I just want to let you know we're going to um open up to questions in in, in just a minute. Um you know she she her, her, her drive is just something um, quite, you just don't see that very often. In the no, and it's like this vision, like, in, and she, she did, she protected those two things. And like her, that drive was to protect her vision and her voice. That's what I realized, like, as I kept moving through and, and that's what I've like, have, has stayed with me too, is that she knew, even though other people didn't know, um, she knew what she was trying to do and she had, but she had to protect it. And, um, that drive to get up, even when she was pushed down or she's waiting for money and she, she's not sure she can pay the rent, you know, that month or keep the lights on. Um, or, you know, there's this amusing scene. I, I keep going back to it where she's, she's, and I, you know, gotten up to work on something on deadline and she's like, all I have is I just had the most interesting dinner. It was popcorn and ground beef. Some bizarre. Thing she yeah, she said it was breakfast. She said I didn't have any cereal or fruit or anything. So I all she had, she said I fried up the hamburger and I popped some popcorn. And while I ate this strange meal, it was really, it was really, um, really funny. You know, you 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 live um, near to where she lived, and I I thought it was so touching to learn that you also live near where she's buried, and that you have able to visit the grave, right? Yeah, yeah. I um yes, I can actually walk to the cemetery from where I live. It's it's about a, I guess it's about a forty minute walk, thirty minute walk. It's not that far. Um, she's at Mountain View. And, um, and it's, and I started going with, um, Ayana Jameson, who I met in the archives and she heads the, uh, <coughs> excuse me, the, um, Octavia, um, Butler Legacy Network. And, um, that's one thing that has happened through this work. Um, I think about this a lot, like how Octavia really was looking for community and it, it was mm -hmm. hard. She was isolated. And all this community that has bloomed um, around her um, is quite beautiful. And I have made four fairly close friends and Ayana is one of them um, from this time in the archive. And so Ayana was the one who um, took me um, there for the first time. And, you know, we went together and just sat and talked 
about all kinds of things, you know, and there she was, you know, with us. And, um, but we talked about work and writing and school and books and, you know, and then we went and had coffee, you know? Yeah. And, and you actually did get to meet her in person. I mean, you didn't get to have that interview, but you, and your mother first took you there. Yes. Right. That's, that's extraordinary. I mean, you you really were the person to do this, Linnell. I mean, you. (laughs) Yes. No, and it was one of those things where like, yeah, my mom, she's the Octavia Butler, you know, she was, you know, her books were on the shelf. My mom was an English teacher. Um, She would buy extra copies of books to keep in her classroom for kids who she felt might be motivated by something different. And like, she would see that, you know, they may be shy or they may be this and like, maybe they they just haven't found the writer for them. And there was something about like, my mom could hand it to them and say, you know, this is written by a black woman and, you know, look at what she did. And so, yes. So I went to see her for the very first time with my mom. That's amazing. Such a great, well, now the fact that she, she did give her archive to the Huntington and that you've in a sense, mind it, you know, and put it between the covers of this really beautiful book, which is out from Angel City Press. <laughs> I mean, I just feel like there's something in there that we can now, all of us can can kind of, you know, feast on from this. And and there, it's so rich. I mean, so each little section, I, I just kind of want to kind of live in it for a while. So I just want to deeply thank you for this work and for, and for the forces that brought you and Octavia together and in so many ways, it's a beautiful um, pairing. Thank you so much. Um, it means a lot in the way you phrase that. Means it, it means a lot too, because I felt like there, all the times you know that I've spent working there, there is this real connection. Um, there feels like a connection because you, there's so much very personal stuff there, but there's also there's something about there's a difference when you, you know, I'm in, you know, I'm a journalist. And so the thing we always want is access, access, you know, how, how long can I spend with somebody? What kind of quality time can I spend with someone? And even if you spend, and I have spent nine months following people, a year following people, um, really getting to know them. There's nothing like this where you're not sitting across the way from them and they're, and they could be sharing things that are really personal, but this is different. I'm looking over her shoulder. I'm mm-hmm. in her arm, you know, I'm watching her write out, you know, a letter, a check, a, you know, whatever. I'm, I'm inside of her in a very different kind of way that I would never be, you know, as a journalist, even doing my best work, you know? Um, and so I really wanted to honor that um, intimacy um, and I also, with the book, I wanted people to have a sense of what it was like to sit with these pieces of paper and look at what these pages looked like. And so when you hold the book, you feel like you're holding something that's hers. That was really important to me. Absolutely. Yeah. Bravo. Bravo. Thank, thank you. Let's take some some questions. It looks like we've got some in there. I think, um, Hallie, are you... Yes, um, I am here and ready. Uh, The first question we have is from Angel City Press. Um, And it's it's a two to three part question. Uh, How did Octavia Butler relate to the community, if that's a fair term, of science fiction writers throughout the arc of her career? And does such a community exist today? Okay. she she ultimately bored her way into that community and it started when she um she became part of something called the open door program and um which was offered through the screenwriters um uh what is it uh, why am i blanking on it's uh it'll come to me anyway um she does this program and it was and it was offered um, to quote unquote minorities and uh, so it's people of color, women, and you could pick which genre you were going to be part of. And um, there she met Harlan Ellison, and Harlan Ellison 
was um, Guild. There we go. Um, and Screenwriters Guild. And he was writing um, and he was really impressed with the work that she did there and suggested that she attend um, Clarion um, and uh, this workshop in Pennsylvania. And she did not have a lot of money and said, no, she couldn't do it. And um, it got worked out finances and that plunked her into this community. Didn't uh, he, didn't he contribute some money so yeah, she could go? Yeah, that was yeah, yeah. Yeah. So that was boom. And that's what started her connections. Then she started going to science fiction conventions and she writes a lot about that in her um, journals. And some of it is very funny, you know, you know, here she is, you know, she's often the only black person, only black woman. Um, she talks a lot about um, what that felt like, um, but sometimes it's humorous, you know, and, and, and so she has a real sense of who she was moving in and out of those worlds. Um, and, and when I saw her speak at, I, as a journalist, I actually did um, I was in the room with her, did talk to her at the science fiction convention called um, Black to the Future in Seattle. And she gave the keynote and the keynote was about exactly this, was about community and how all these black science fiction and fantasy writers and filmmakers and um, um, directors, you know, world building and this idea of like, you know, I yearned to be in a room like this, you know, mm -hmm. I yearned to be in a room like this and not be the only person. So make the most of it, you know, exchange cards, talk to people, you know, you know, be in community. So that was very moving, you know, seeing her, you know, and then going back like that, that was the thing about like, when I was at that convention, I did not realize how she, I did not realize how lonely she had felt, mm. you know, um, so thinking back at it now, like I realized like she really meant that for us now. So. Ellie, is there more of that question or are you going to, I think, um, the next question, you just kind of answered a question from Noel, which is, did you ever meet her? Um, did you I see the one about from Elena? How do you see Octavia's work specifically re-speaking to this awakened or Waking generation. Waking, nice waking generation. Oh, um, that's a big question. Um, I mean, it's so clear that she has struck a chord. It's Octavia. She, when she was living, she would tell people, you know, I'm not prescient. I'm just paying attention. You know, mm. not clairvoyant. I'm just paying attention. I think the things that she saw, the things that she tried to warn us about over and over again, um, you know, the fact that they're happening and in such accuracy, um, I think strikes a chord. I think the thing that young people are really plugged into uh, about, about her writing is that not, she's, it's not just the fear part um, or the, the thing about, you know, we, you know, like she's like, I'm not trying to scare you. I'm trying to get you to take action. And she's giving people ways of thinking about community and joining together and love and that change happens and you have to learn how to pivot and grow and move with it. And I think that and, and finding pleasure because she worked really hard herself, but she didn't know how to like locate joy. And she knew the things that made her happy. And she loved nature and she loved being, you know, there's this, one of my favorite photos of her is if you go on the internet and put Octavia Butler in horse, you know, like you will see the beautiful picture of her standing in a green meadow with her arm around this horse and this smile, this like million dollar smile, you know? So I think while we're fighting, you know, through all this terrible, terrible stuff we have inherited is that, change happens. We have to address it. It happens. This is what she's warning us about too, but you can build a community, build alliance, find love 
And that seems to be speaking to a lot of the young people that, that are, are really connecting to the books. That's what I'm finding when I speak. Mm. To them. Yeah. Um, another question we have from Zoe is what kind of relationships did she have in her life? Um, she had, I think the fact that she was so, she always says that writing came first and there's some very funny things in there about like, she would write down about, you know, like out, I don't really know if I could be married because I like my writing too much. You know, I need to have time. I would have to find a husband who would um, like give me space to do these things. And, and, and she starts this as a, at a very young age, you know, like realizing like, you know, where, you know, where her priorities were in terms of relationships. She had many long relationships um, or friendships with um friends. I mean, friends, and I mean, from every aspect of her life, from very young age, like, you know, from elementary school to high school. Um, she was a really dedicated letter writer. So there's a ton of letters in there to people. Um, but she didn't, I have not seen much evidence in the archive that tells me if there, if there was some very special person and there are some boxes that are sealed, we don't know about it. I don't know, you know, I, I can't speak to that. But she did have, I think there's this thing about Octavia where, you know, she just seems like this sort of isolated floating, you know, being, but she had deep feelings and um, deep yearnings and, and had to like, and I think made this choice to be, the writing was the most important thing, you know, and, and, and what, who, who else was around her and floating around her? I don't know. She didn't, there were no diary entries about, you know, you know, like a long-term relationship that I found. Are the boxes you said that are, that are sealed, they're sealed by her request? Do you know? I don't know how that works. So I can't really speak to that. But there is language in the finding aid that explains that certain boxes are going to be sealed until 20 this, 20 that, you know. So it, I'm not sure. You know, I don't know how that works. Um, another question we have from Beatrice uh, is... I would love for you to talk about the notes from her teachers, especially the ones that did not support her. Why did she keep those? And how did she overcome all these voices that put her down? It's a really good question. Um, she kept everything. So the, and so those were there and with, but those are the ones I didn't see a lot of positive ones. That was the thing. I think that's what struck me was that there was so much negative um, feedback of what she kept. And also I could only use my head too as a writer who kept things like manuscripts. I might also suspect that she was keeping the stories that mattered to her. So no matter what anybody said, she might've tossed out other things. So she kept them. And again, if you saw the archive, you'd understand it's like, there's like so much there. So I don't think so much she was singling those out, you know, as like, you know, I'm going to learn from this and I'm going to fight, I'm going to fight against this. But um, the, but, but I do think the way she overcame the negative voices is that she continued to make herself better. She continued to read and write and make herself unassailable. I mean, that was the thing that becomes clear. I mean, the time in, the time reading, the time writing, the time rewriting, it's the thing that she figured out from all of her reading. It's like, this is what writers do. You 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 keep trying to make it better and better and better and better. And then people were responding eventually and she would start to sell things. But then she'd go for long stretches with not, you know, with not selling five years, you know not selling one thing. So, then you made 
point also that um, if she had, someone asked her, you know, what she she couldn't say. She didn't say to them publicly, like, I'm a writer because she hadn't sold anything in, you know, five years. But as then you added in your note, but but she always knew she was yeah. a writer. You know? And then, so that, that yeah. she was almost like in her DNA in some way. Exactly. And I, it's funny because at first when I was exactly that, because like when I was reading it and I just thought she she usually owns it. Why did she not own it in that moment? And maybe because it was a formal setting, you know, because she was writing so early. Yeah. And I, it was in her DNA. It, it just was, it, it, I can't imagine her doing anything else. I mean, you, mm -hmm. when you look at, at such a young age when she was just making shapes on paper and, you know, just writing out song lyrics, like, I mean, the things that she just kept saved, you know, of the writing, just the act of writing was also important to her. It seems like, you know, typing up song lyrics, you know, <laughs> you know, for the radio that she'd hear on the radio. Receipts for typewriter ribbons. I mean, uh, you know, shopping yeah. list. Yeah. That, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So um, it's, it's, you know, and they're, you know, journals on, her bus trips and on her train trips. I mean, she was never without a notebook and that's what, that's her advice, you know, to writers, but it's like, she really, 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 really adhered to that, you know, um, you know, took a notebook to the movies, you know. And, and tell us the difference between like, so she would write in a journal, but sometimes she would do, I love when you talked about sessioning. <laughs> so having like these chats with herself sort of, yeah. right? Yes. Exactly. Those, those journal entries were so interesting to me because they were different from the regular diaries. Like, and she, and she, she designated, they were different. Like she, there were the journals she wrote in the daily journals and the things where she might be dealing with her page counts or like working out a character study or, or something, or one of her characters was giving her trouble. Like for example, Lauren from the parables, she really like had to fight with Lauren as a character. So that would be in her journal journal, but in her sessioning journals, something might've happened to her. She might've gotten in an argument with somebody or she might've had a bad reading or she might've had um, something happened during her day. And that's where she would go to dump it. So it would just come out and she would just write like, you know, why the self-destruct, you know, why did you do this? Why did, and then she would leave it there. It would be out and she would leave it there. Mm. She could go back to the work. And I thought that's something I should adopt. <laughs> you know? like it's, just, it's not, so your journal, your day, your daily journal is not cluttered with, I'm having a bad day and you know, I'm so blue. Um, that's over here. And then you can deal with the work stuff here or your life stuff there, you know, your other life stuff. And so yeah, the fact that she would take that and maybe write an affirmation before she got started, um, like that might be her um, prompt, and um, and then she would go forward. So um, yeah, that was that was a place to just dump things. Yeah, and I love those. Those are really great. Those journals are great. Do you have any last thoughts or Louise, any last questions before we say goodnight? Um, Linnell, do you want to conclude with any thoughts on, on the, on the project itself? Um, I definitely, I was thinking about, I guess, I guess I'd like to just to say about her, the thing that, still kind of floats around me when I, I think about her and her work and this idea of persistence and the thing that stays with me is like, you know, and I, especially after hearing Kamala Harris um, the other night say, um, dream ambitiously. Mm. This is what, this is her whole life is this ambitious dream, everything she did, you know, and, so this idea of um, try a difficult path, walk into uncertainty, float, 
you know, just float with it, roll with it. Um, and, and, you know, and when someone is in your way and telling you like, no, you can't do that. You know, that's just not for you. See them for who they are mm -hmm. and see what paths they haven't taken. And that's what I've learned from her is that she had so many people like, no, don't do that. Or how could you think? And she, she just kept dreaming ambitiously. And so dream ambitiously, everybody. <laughs> Perfect. Do like Octavia. Be Octavia. She's such a huge inspiration. Um, thank you both so much for being here for this amazing conversation. Um, thanks everyone for, for joining us and tuning in. Order the book. It's fantastic. Um, yeah. And, and good night. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye, everybody. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon. I see.